This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's also though talk about what has been happening in China. They have been going through the process of their Congress that they have. It's a kind of a big convention where they talk about the Chinese Communist Party and China moving forward. Well, former Chinese President Hu Jintao, who is the predecessor of Xi Jinping, was unexpectedly escorted out of the closing ceremony of that Congress over the weekend. You may have seen this video. It is quite shocking when you watch it. He was pretty much, you know, held by the arms, led off the stage of the main auditorium. And lots of questions about what is going on there. Why was he escorted out in that fashion? Uh, Lots of questions essentially about China's leadership right now. Now, joining us to talk more about this is actually Singh, a non-resident research fellow at the Council on International Policy. Akshay, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on. What did you think when you saw that video? Well, I, I can't understand my shock at seeing that video. Like These uh, events are quite scripted, usually. Um, and to see a former president, a former leader of China be escorted out by the arm, I think shocked a lot of China watchers, to be honest with you. And what? tell me about the time that Hu Jintao was the leader. I mean, was there any hint prior to this that there were, you know, problems between him and the his successor? Yeah, so Hu Jintao was quite a different type of president in the sense that he was celebrated uh, in some ways for trying to open up China. And you might recall that the 2008 Beijing Olympics were under his term. Um, Xi Jinping has had probably quite a different presidency. He's more, um, I should say, Leninist in his way of approaching politics. In China, very closed, uh, has cracked down a lot of who and his allies, um, you know, uh, reputations, uh, and has also tried to consolidate power around him. So I think it's fair to say that they both have different styles of management, different uh, kind of logic and uh, approaches to to, uh, administering the country. Right. But that, I mean, is that normal when when a new leader comes in? Is it, you know, yeah, okay, we're not going to be exactly the same as the previous leader. Uh, yes and no. I think uh, I think it's normal in Chinese politics to have people swing. There are different factions in the Communist Party of China. Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao are from different factions, and she's done a pretty good job of cracking down on Hu's faction. Um, but I think Xi Jinping is operating on a wholly different level in the sense that uh, we haven't seen the kind of power consolidation that uh, he has managed to achieve probably since the Tao of uh, Chairman Mao. And the fact that she is staying on as a third term kind of breaks with Chinese convention because he's actually passed the retirement age that has kind of been around to ensure that people don't have too much power in the Politburo. Uh, The one thing I do want to say about who is that he did have people who watch China know he had health issues. He was escorted into the party Congress uh, very similarly to the way he was taken out. But you can see in the video, as you pointed out, that he didn't want to leave in Mm -hmm. that video. So there are a couple of theories as to why he may have been taken out. It could have been a legitimate health issue. Uh, he could be you know, suffering. He tried to grab Xi Jinping's notes in one instance and uh, was kind of batted away. Uh, the other thing is that he could have been, this could be a message that uh, the government is sending or the party is sending to say that whose faction is truly dead. Um, you know, it's party politics are complex and cutthroat. Um, and the, sometimes when things happen, you have to ask yourself whether or not it was orchestrated. I guess what I found so fascinating about this is it is kind of a behind-the-scenes look in a country that you normally don't get that. Usually everything is so tightly controlled. 
Yeah, it was it was very. Uh, you can tell from the way that uh, Xi Jinping reacted. He seemed quite uh, annoyed, to be honest with you, uh, that the forum had been disturbed in the way it was. That you're absolutely right. This is not something that perhaps that was as planned as well as maybe they wanted it to be and executed the way it wanted it to be. And Chinese politics are no are notoriously opaque. I mean, people can guess for years as to why things happen and get it totally wrong. So it does offer a fascinating window into the dynamics of party leadership and. Regardless of what, why this happened, one thing is extremely clear. Uh, it's that Xi Jinping is at the helm and his new Politburo, which excludes a woman for the first time in 25 years, is really all about him. Right. And so one of the things perhaps people don't realize is that in the way that it is about him is that he has extended his control on power, whereas up until now, as you pointed out, not since Chairman Mao, has there been somebody able to be in power in China for this long? How did he do that? There are a couple of ways they amended the party constitution. They've changed the way that, uh, you know, term limits are enforced in China in the presidency. Uh, They also enshrined Xi Jinping thought, which is his approach to Chinese communism, or it's called socialism with Chinese characteristics, in the constitution and various other other documents. And he spent the last 10 years basically removing his, uh, his political opposition. And like I mentioned, there are various factions in the party Xi Jinping's faction uh, is clearly the most powerful faction at the moment, and it is very well represented in the Politburo at the moment. Um, And like I mentioned as well, Xi Jinping is staying beyond the traditional retirement age of 68. He's 69. Um, And a lot of the people he's put in the Politburo are kind of, in a a way, if things go well, they could replace him and carry on his vision. But it remains to be seen if Xi will actually step down even after five years. So would you say that Xi Jinping's hold on power right now is very strong? Oh, oh, absolutely. I don't think there's a realistic challenger to his power. I think when he came to power in 2012, you could argue that perhaps um, there were challenges to his power and maybe he couldn't stay on, but he's done a pretty good job of removing pretty any, any, any competition. And what is the difference now, would you say, like what kind of impact has he had on the way China is perceived and China's actions kind of on the world stage versus his predecessors? That's an interesting question, because I think depending on which side of the fence you are, you could really like what he's done and uh, other people really dislike what he's done. You know, I personally like I, I think that he's both put China ahead and taken them behind quite a bit. Uh, under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, who was a former premier, there was this period of kind of opening up. The Internet was a little bit more free. People could talk about things. Chinese investment was going abroad more frequently. And even China domestically was liberalizing to some extent. Um, and people had some hope that perhaps Chinese politics would would open up. This is not to say that uh, Xi's predecessors were not uh, totalitarian in some ways, because they certainly were. They still cracked on in human rights and a whole range of other issues. But Xi has gone totally the other way in a sense that the uh, authoritarian kind of tinge to his regime is notable, and uh, he has been much stricter on political dissent as well as human rights violations, or I should say in general, uh, the the ability for people in China to... Uh, consume media freely, access the internet freely, and to talk about issues. The Hu Jintao uh, uh, debacle was was censored in China, for example. So I think in some ways, he's repressed China politically, societally, as well as uh, the kind of ability for people in China to live life freely. In other ways, he's moved the Chinese economy forward, arguably. Uh, However, he's been quite aggressive in international politics. So I think a lot of countries, especially in the Western world, have um, reacted negatively to that. So perceptions of China has become more negative in countries like Canada, the United States, the UK, but also in Europe. 
much more negative than I would say they were under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, which makes it more difficult for China to carry out its kind of global uh, ideals. The last thing I would say on that is probably, I think, who, uh, sorry, Xi Jinping is leading a country that uh, as you're going to see the end of this pandemic and the issues of what's happening there, uh, that's economically much weaker than um, uh, probably he wants it to be. You may be aware that China stopped releasing GDP statistics mm-hmm. right before the, the Congress, which is quite uh, quite crazy in my mind. It's not something a developed economy does. And I think it just signals that he's feeling that he needs to have much tighter reins on how China projects its views abroad, how they share data about its economy, and how they control the planning of that economy. All in all, to say that, um, personally, I think he's taken a much more stronger approach to domestic and international politics, and it hasn't worked out necessarily very well for China from a reputational standpoint. Well, thanks so much for the analysis this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it's fair to say that two issues really made an impact in our recent municipal elections that we had. Public safety, yes, absolutely. Also, housing. And the people who won in those elections, particularly those in Metro Vancouver, definitely had to deal with the issue of housing. And many of those winners are also, they're going to have to hit the ground running when it comes to addressing the increased affordability of housing and the continuing concerns about supply. So is it possible to deliver in the four years now that these new mayors have? Well, to talk more about that, Dr. Paul Kershaw joins us now, professor at the University of British Columbia and the School of Population and Public Health and the director of the Master of Public Health Program and founder of Generation Squeeze. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for being here, because I know housing is such a huge issue for people. What did you think of the promises that you heard during this recent election campaign? Well, I have to confess that increasingly I I worry a little bit about municipal politics when in order to earn our votes, we need mayoral candidates to make pretty darn grand promises about how they're going to resolve housing and affordability. When in the reality, no one level of government, and especially not the municipal level of government, can, can solve housing and affordability. This is a, an across all three levels of government issue. And ultimately, actually, we, we kind of get the politics we deserve. Or our politicians are going to reflect the mood of the electorate. And, well, I think there is absolutely real concern about housing and affordability in our region. We haven't yet got to the point where we're acknowledging that the flip side of that unaffordability is rising wealth and rising wealth inequality. And I'm not convinced we have enough citizens yet saying to, you know, on behalf of the mayor or on behalf of our new premier, we don't want home prices to rise any longer. And indefinitely, we don't want to see that. Right. And so in the, in the absence of that cultural shift, it's going to be challenging for any political leader to solve this problem. I don't know how any political leader can get us to that point, especially with some of the promises that we heard. Did you hear about any magic pill out there? Well, there is no magic pill out there. There's no silver bullet. There's the silver buckshot. And so I think one thing that is important about the Vancouver election is that, you know, the the team party, which was more oriented towards what I would describe as a NIMBY attitude, did not receive a large portion of the vote. And so that does create more cultural space in Vancouver to say, nope. It's clear we have a you know, majority of Vancouver saying we're going to need to build, we're going to need to add supply and add density, especially where we already have a zoning for housing. And while we do so, we're going to need to protect renters. So that's an important part of the, the discourse. But we still haven't turned our, our attitude toward you know, some of the you know, demand side of things. So I'm thinking of Premier Eby, you're going to talk to him later on today. And 
he's talking about changing the rules of the game. The rules are rigged. I think that's so critical for a premier to recognize that. If we think that housing is supposed to deliver affordability, the rules are rigged against that. If housing is supposed to deliver wealth accumulation for homeowners like me, it's been amazing at that. And so I'm wondering the degree to which we now have a provincial conversation that can more boldly talk about the way in which the rules of the housing system have been rigged towards homeowners acquiring more wealth. Right. It is such a challenge, though, because clearly in some municipalities like in Vancouver, um, the people who won were not afraid to say they were going to build more housing. In fact, the people who won in Vancouver, many of them had voted for the Broadway plan, which had been so uh, contentious with the public, but they all voted in support of it. Uh, but people also want services. They want communities and places like Surrey say they don't have enough of those community centers, those that infrastructure. Yeah, and so I don't think that there's an incompatibility between building community centers and building housing. Indeed, we can you know add those community centers in as we're building building new housing. I think maybe you're raising the question, but like, how do we raise the revenue for that? Um, and I think that is that is absolutely the rub right now. I think that you know I've been on your show many times, or Mike's in the show, and you you often bring me on because I'm controversial. I say we need to tax housing wealth more. We need to tax you know, million dollar plus owners like me more. And, you know, that'll get your phone lines ringing. So Uh, maybe I'm just doing that again for you. And, but that's, it really has to be where the conversation is at. You know, I I will plead with your list. I'll plead with the the new premier who's coming on your show later. People have said like the downtown east side, you know, has, has reached a point that we haven't seen in the past. And it's not as if living conditions on the downtown east side have been great, you know, decades ago. And, and we, say we find it hard to think about, you know, solving unaffordability in terms of homelessness because you don't know if we can afford it. But the flip side of the unaffordability problem is the wealth printing reality. We have printed so much wealth in this region. We have a lot of wealth to potentially tap into. We need, the, we need citizens to be open to saying, yeah, you know, as someone living in a million and a half dollar home, I may not be Jeff Bezos, but... You know, it's okay to expect me to contribute slightly more. Yeah, but Paul, right now, I don't think that's possible. I mean, you're talking about, first of all, wealth on paper for most people. And you're talking about a time when they are being squeezed from all sides. People, I don't think people have that money available that you think they do. Well, wealth on paper, I think we, you know, we should have a whole conversation about that because, you know, we have industries designed to free up people to use the wealth in their homes. I talk of what I speak. I've done it multiple times. But in addition to that, it is the case that people face gas, you know, gas price inflation and there's food inflation and whatnot. But housing and infl- gas inflation makes energy companies wealthier. Food inflation makes big food companies wealthier. Housing inflation makes everyday homeowners healthier because we're the majority of owners of housing. And so housing inflation in and of itself hasn't been really harmful for homeowners. It's made them better off. And we need to be able to increasingly, I think that's what we're competing for. It's a competition right now for who is affluent? And can we recognize increasingly we might be, quote unquote, richer than we think? I think that's the bank of, you know, the, the yeah, social bank, bank motto. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's where it's at. I mean, I guess maybe I'm coming on sounding righteous this morning. Like we need to be the best versions of ourselves if we're going to solve this problem. And we, we have to create political cover for our politicians to be courageous. OK, people will have thoughts on that. So then, Paul, in your opinion, what would you tell these new mayors I would tell the new mayors, uh, be bold at using, you know, using your zoning and approving new housing to get some affordable units built. And then at the mayors, you need to be really good at engaging Victoria and engaging Ottawa because you cannot solve this problem alone. And as a result, then we need those people to say, 
We don't want to grow Vancouver's economy or Surrey's economy by relying on real estate being the primary driver of economic growth. Because all that does is drive up our major cost of living. It doesn't create a lot of employment. And it makes, yes, homeowners wealthier, but everyone else has their hard work pay off less because it takes more work to cover your major cost of living. And even if you are a homeowner now, if you divorce, you run into new challenges. If you're needing to flee violence, you're running into challenges. It's so hard to escape violence these days because you, you, you're economically dependent on the person you're living with because where else are you going to find housing that one earner can cover? These are huge issues that we really need to get our heads and hearts around. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a great day, and I enjoy the phone board lighting up. <laughs> this is Mornings with Simi. Public safety, housing, health care. I mean, the list of priorities hasn't changed, but the person at the top is about to. David Eby is the premier designate and will soon be sworn in to lead the province. So how will he deal with BC's most pressing issues? Well, he joins us now to talk about that this morning. Good morning. Congratulations. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, how do you feel about how the leadership race went? I know you talked a bit about this on Friday, but wasn't as smooth as, as perhaps you had been expecting. No, it was a really unusual uh, ending to the leadership race. Uh, and uh, and I think for many uh, BC NDP, NDP members, it ranged from disappointing to, uh, to saddening. Uh, but, uh, but we are uh, uh, moving forward. Um, I've reached out to, uh, to uh, Anjali and her supporters, encouraging them to stay involved. I understand she's going to, which is great, uh, because uh, there were a bunch of people who joined to support her that um, don't get, didn't get a chance to vote, but... Uh, that are the future of our party in many respects and a key part of the future of our party. So I'm, I'm keen to have them evolved. Yeah. How would you absorb that kind of the passion clearly that those supporters, those, those new people who signed up for the NDP showed for those environmental issues? Do you feel those need to be addressed more? Well, there's just a really clear choice uh, between uh, the NDP and the VC liberals when it comes to the issue of climate. I mean, Mr. Falcon is very clear that if he's elected, he'll rip up our climate plan. Uh, and they'll send us back a number of years, uh, and and we can't. We have to push forward on the issues of providing clean energy. We've got an incredibly uh, uh, remarkable hydrogen industry that's building up in our province. We've got lots of clean energy opportunities. I was up in uh, Powell River where there's a shuttered pulp mill, uh, and the Tlaman Nation is working with private investors on a clean energy proposal out there. It's really exciting. Uh, this is the future, and the and the party of uh, of those opportunities of our clean energy future is the NDP, and so uh, that's what it's about: is making sure that these uh, these committed young climate activists um, uh, see themselves and see the opportunity to be involved in that kind of future. So, when we have Premier David Eby coming up here, what is going to be different about your priorities in office from the last, say, five years of Premier John Horgan? Well, um, you know, there's a your listeners will know that we were elected on an, an election platform. Uh, and uh, I just want to um, underline that I'm committed to delivering on that platform. Uh, so that doesn't change. Um, but issues and, uh, and priorities uh, and challenges have come up since that platform. Uh, and one of those is the issue, uh, really uh, an escalation of the issue around housing uh, with uh, incredibly high rents and housing prices coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and people with decent incomes uh, increasingly priced out of markets where uh, uh, they were the affordable markets before, you know, up the valley, uh, all the way out to Chilliwack, for example. Uh, and, uh, and so the need for the provincial government to be involved in delivering uh, and facilitating the delivery of affordable and attainable middle class housing that's actually affordable for people to rent 
uh, and to buy uh, is a remarkable thing, but we're going to do it. We're going to work with the private sector. We'll work with the nonprofit sector. Uh, and we'll work with city governments and the federal government to deliver that housing. And so that's an example of the, sh- the kind of shift uh, that is necessary, uh, but a core commitment to delivering those uh, election platform commitments to British Columbians. I would say another issue that has come up since the last provincial election is the issue of public safety. We certainly saw that reflected in municipal election results last week. What will you do to help local mayors tackle that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you right now from downtown Vancouver, uh, just a few blocks away from the downtown east side. And, and I've never seen the downtown east side in, uh, in quite as much uh, distress uh, as it is right now. Uh, tents on the sidewalks and, and knock-on impacts in Chinatown and Gastown. And, and there are uh, smaller versions of that uh, issue in other parts of the province, no less uh, frustrating for local governments. So what uh, people will see uh, in terms of the downtown east side, for example, is the province is going to bottom line uh, response to that neighborhood that's in crisis to provide that support to the people who are living in the tents, uh, but also the broader community who looks at this and says, this is just not acceptable. Uh, And I agree. Uh, So they'll see uh, the province bottom lining a response to that and supporting local governments across the province that are facing this issue. I know uh, Kamloops and Trail and Terrace are facing, uh, facing significant issues right now around uh, disorder in their downtown cores associated with mental health and addiction and homelessness. And that support will be there both for the people who are sick in the streets and for those uh, those broader communities that um, feel less safe about their downtowns as a result. Yeah, what do you mean when you say bottom lining it? It means taking a lead role. So uh, the province, the downtown east side uh, uh, issues are, you know, they can be seen as a city issue. Uh, and, and they certainly were, I think, in the municipal election here in Vancouver. Uh, the mayor and council have a role to play and, and their role on the police board in terms of police response and bylaw enforcement, all those kinds of things. But the issue is well beyond uh, the capacity of the city now, uh, at least in my opinion, when I look at the downtown east side. Uh, the city does not have uh, the resources uh, to be able to look at the downtown east side as an integrated whole, including all of the provincial programs that go on down there. We need to look at that neighborhood, and this is uh, particular to this neighborhood, as what it is, which is uh, essentially a, a, a neighborhood that um, is in crisis and uh, that is uh, the home of many governments, not-for-profit uh, and other interventions that are not coordinated in the way they should be. Uh, and so to have an integrated approach to that neighborhood is going to make a really significant difference with all of us working together, but someone has to bring people together and that'll be the province. And it's the same thing on a smaller scale in other communities, the province bringing those key people together to address the issue because the issue looks similar in different communities, but like housing, it can really vary why the problem is present in uh, in Kamloops or in Terrace or Trail as compared to downtown Vancouver. Right. And you talked about people feeling safer in their neighborhoods. Can the province tackle the revolving door issue in the justice system, which has so many people frustrated? And how would you do that? Well, there's two uh, parts to this. One is um, changes to the criminal code that have been made by the federal government that were a hot topic at a meeting that was just held of all of the provinces and the territories. Uh, And uh, the federal government coming out of that meeting has committed to looking at those changes they've made and addressing them. Uh, That's their responsibility. Um, But the uh, opportunity for the province Uh, despite the political games uh, in the legislature, is really around uh, the health response, the mental health and addiction, the people who, you know, someone who's screaming downtown uh, that that when police attend, uh, that they have uh, the option of a place for that person to go, a way to respond, to intervene, 
that helps de-escalate the situation and uh, and interrupts it before that person uh, uh, gets into an even worse situation where they're causing property damage or uh, assaulting somebody else. Uh, that intervention, when someone's in psychiatric distress, when they're in uh, the throes of, uh, of a drug that they've taken that, uh, you know, they thought was one drug, but turns out to be another that's causing them to act aggressively. Uh, these are really serious issues, challenging issues for government, uh, challenging issues for law enforcement, uh, but uh, providing those psychiatric resources so that we can respond to the issues in the downtown is really the provincial opportunity here. Do you think that's the issue, though, when you do see somebody, and you mentioned you are downtown this morning, too, when, you know, windows get smashed at, say, that TD Bank there on Hastings or at SFU on in downtown Vancouver, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's two groups of, uh, of, of criminals, if, if that's what you're getting at, to me, at one is uh, people that are in the in the, right. in the grasp of a psychiatric illness. Someone else, others are just uh, causing damage or uh, or committing crimes for profit. And and you know when we saw uh, the uh, money laundering issue, the volume of cash that comes from uh, the drug trade uh, that comes from illicit activities. Uh, no wonder the gangs are fighting over it. Uh, so we have to go over that, go after that money. We have to go after those assets. We have uh, a good map forward from the money laundering inquiry about how we can go after those at the provincial level. Uh, and I intend to go after that. Um, but more than that, uh, you know, in a number of communities, they've grown quite quickly. They haven't been able to uh, to increase uh, police complements to deal with that uh, base level of crime. So making sure that uh, level of police service is, uh, is matching population growth, the police are able to respond but also relieving police from having to respond to uh, mental health and addiction issues will help them focus on those core areas as well. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Have to take a quick moment here to check in with what is happening in the United Kingdom as there is some history being made there today. Vicki Barker joins us now, CBS correspondent in London. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Simi. Tell me about this yes. new prime minister. <laughs> yes, well, Britain is about to get its uh, first ethnic South Asian prime minister. He is Rishi Sunak. He's British-born, a practicing Hindu. Um, and I have to say, uh, today is Diwali, the, the Hindu festival of lights, the, the big holiday. And back when he was Britain's finance minister, Sunak said that lighting the Diwali candle outside his then Downing Street residence was the proudest moment of his life. Well, Simi, I think Sunak has something yeah. else to be proud of this Diwali. Yeah, how did this happen? How did he end up on top? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, after uh, after his uh, soon-to-be predecessor, Liz Truss, you know, uh, landed on the bottom. I mean, uh, uh, this the midterm replacement for Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, uh, it just sparked turmoil in the markets and in the British economy and among British voters uh, with some highly unpopular economic policies, which a number of economists also said were you know, economically inappropriate for uh, Britain's high inflationary environment. Uh, so the pound has been plummeting, stocks were plummeting, uh, the trusses, opinion polls, you know, ratings plummeted. Uh, and she finally announced her resignation last Thursday after a record 44 days on the job. That then triggered a leadership contest within the Conservative Party because uh, it's not national elections because it's a, a midterm replacement for 
um, actually Boris Johnson two prime right. ministers ago. Right. But he so, also bowed out, right? He, they thought he was going to come back and he's out. You've got to keep the score. Well, yeah. it looked for a little while as if he was. He cut, Johnson cut short his Caribbean holiday to fly back to the UK on word that there was going to be this leadership contest and he seemed to be prepared to come back like, you know, yeah. Napoleon or de Gaulle. Uh, and it isn't clear whether he actually even uh, gathered the minimum 100 nominations needed from his fellow parliamentarians. At any rate, at the last minute last night, uh, he announced, no, he was not going to be r- running. And then at the literal last minute, uh, just before the deadline for these nominations, Sunak's only challenger, Penny Mordaunt, dropped out. So Sunak, wow. as soon as King Charles puts his seal of approval on the deal, uh, Sunak will be uh, Britain's third prime minister since early September. Oh boy, what a timeline. Vicki, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. This is Mornings with Simi. Does not happen very often in BC history where a premier of the province decides to step down on their own terms. Nope, that is not the BC way, usually. But we do have that right now as Premier John Horgan is wrapping things up, making way for uh, David Eby, who we spoke to earlier on the show. But joining us now is John Horgan, Premier of BC. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, how are you feeling? Good, uh, good. I'm uh, I'm cancer-free. I've uh, got uh, a series of uh, visits for to doctors for the next uh, number of years, I'm sure, but uh, yes. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that, if we could. The impact that kind of your health had on all of this, you were so public with your cancer battle. I know I've said this to you, but talking publicly about it, I feel like has been so important for people to hear because I think often with a cancer diagnosis, people suffer in silence. Why was it so important for you to be public with the cancer diagnosis in your battle? Well, I, this is my second go-round. As you know, I had uh, bladder cancer back in 2008 and, uh, and then diagnosed last year with throat cancer. And uh, I, my, my sense was that this, this can happen to any one of us at any time. I don't think there's a listener that hasn't been affected in some way by a, a loved one or a family member. Uh, that has been uh, stricken with cancer. And the outcomes are so positive these days compared to what they were 15, 20 years ago that it, it seemed to me that I, I have a, a platform, uh, I'm, I'm high profile, and to draw attention to the importance of uh, listening to your body, listening to your loved ones who say you should get that checked out uh, is really important. So, uh, uh, and of course, it's tough for me and uh, being high profile, I can't just roll into the hospital and stay for a couple of days without that becoming news. So it struck me that just let's just be open about it and talk about it and try and raise awareness. Yeah, it takes a toll, though, doesn't it? I've been through this in my family, too, and it, it really does take a toll. Did you notice that difference for yourself and your energy level? Oh, the, the energy, absolutely. And in fact, the reason I'm talking to you as an outgoing premier today is that very thing. I uh, the, the job is all-consuming. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, I found myself coming out of the uh, radiation treatment. Of course, I'm a bit, bit of an energizer bunny on most days. And, and I just assumed I was going to be fine. And I look back on photos uh, or video of me a few weeks after the radiation treatment, and I'm thinking, why did they let me outside? <laughs> what were they thinking? But I, I wanted to go. I felt good. And but uh, as the day wore on, I found myself just very, very lethargic. That that my energy starting to come back, but but it was uh, it was the decision to uh, to pass the reins to a new generation is something that I've been 
uh, thinking about for a long time. I, I love the job. I, uh, people have been so kind to me, Simi, not just uh, prior to uh, the cancer diagnosis, but since then, uh, uh, just uh, so gratifying, so humbling to uh, have the confidence of my neighbours and, and um, many British Columbians. It's been a, a tremendous ride, and I, I don't, uh, well, people keep saying, what do you regret? And the reality is I don't regret any of it. Are you going to miss any of it, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm a very uh, people-oriented person. I love engaging with people, uh, uh, and so I will be doing less of that. But at the same time, I'll be able to go back to my normal uh, personality, which is just kind of randomly engaging with people uh, without uh, it being uh, about votes, without it being about uh, uh, complaints. It'll just be me talking to people again, which is something I I really love to do. It's who I am. Uh, I, I like collecting stories. Uh, dropping in on people's lives uh, has been the best part of the job, uh, randomly uh, and sometimes deliberately. Getting to know people and organizations and communities, it's just been such a privilege. And uh, I, uh, I will look back on it fondly for the rest of my life. Do you think you'll miss you know, the political aspect of it? Do you see yourself dropping in on that every once in a while? Or are you going to be leaving <laughs> politics alone for a little while? Well, I'm staying around for the time being as MLA because I want to reconnect with my community for the past five years. You know, they've been tumultuous times, fires, floods, heat domes, uh, pandemic, uh, and then personal uh, issues as well. So I want to get to know my uh, my community is the fastest growing community on Vancouver Island. And there's a whole bunch of new people I've not met yet. So I'd like to spend some time doing that. But uh, the, I have to say the cut and thrust of politics uh, is completely disinteresting to me. I, I find that um, uh, I've always been someone who always listens to the other side. I want to know why people have the point of view they have. And uh, although I gave as good as I got in opposition, I have tried in government to be uh, representative of all the values in the community. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that. I know that you know, you've been doing some of these interviews and you get asked about your regrets all the time, but what, what advice would you have? Like you've got a government here that has two more years theoretically uh, in power. What do you think they still need to do? Well, uh, I, we have a platform that we ran on in 2020. Uh, David is going to carry that on. He'll, of course, be making amendments as, as he sees fit and as the, the cabinet and the caucus see fit. But uh, what I've discovered is, uh, and I knew this, of course, intellectually, but now I've, I've had five years of practical experience. You lay out your platform during the election campaign of the values you have and the areas you want to focus on. We wanted to focus on reconciliation, so we brought in the Declaration Act, and there's much work to do there. Uh, we wanted to reduce costs for people, so we got rid of medical services premiums. We eliminated the tolls and fixed ICBC. They're going to continue to have to do that. But what, what government is all about, Simi, is events, the things that happen to you along the way. And uh, certainly uh, my five years has been very busy in that regard. But you have to keep pushing your agenda of the issues that you campaigned on. But the public looks at how you respond to the crises as they emerge. And we had our share over the past five years. But all governments do, uh, regardless of uh, political stripe. And uh, my advice to David and, and the team is to continue to listen to your neighbors, to your community. We have uh, such a diverse caucus now that represent more women than men. The first time ever that a government in Canada has had more women in their caucus than men. And, and I think that that, uh, that will be here to stay. And that's a good thing. That now represents the, the breakout of the demographics of community. Uh, and so I, my advice is to keep listening 
and always focus on uh, the needs of people. The, the, the needs of politics and politicians is what turns people off. Uh, when you are talking about the issues that matter to them, uh, they, they find that the issues that divide us are pretty insignificant and the values that unite us uh, as a province and as a country are the things people really want you to focus on. I wanted to really thank you for making this time for us this morning. Is there something you wanted to say to the people of BC before you wrap this thing up? Uh, well, I uh, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me the space to, uh, to do the best I could. Uh, I, uh, I made mistakes along the way. We all do. Uh, I keep thinking of that uh, Doug and the Slug song, Day by Day. It keeps ringing in, in uh, my my ears, <laughs> yeah. you know. Good one. Uh, you know, uh, mistakes, uh, I've made a few, and uh, I just get stronger day by day. I, I do what I do, and I know what I know. And so to everybody listening, uh, thanks for your patience. And for those who are losing their minds and can't wait to get rid of me, I'm gone. So there you go. Everybody's happy. <laughs> Listen, we wish you the best of luck and best of health and keep in touch. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Emmy. Appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. But right now we're talking about real estate. Now, if you saw a house for sale in Vancouver with both a basement suite and a laneway house and it was listed for a million dollars, what would you do? I mean, we're talking six bedrooms, six bathrooms and listed for a million dollars. And that was a listing on the market last week. So what is the thinking behind that? Well, the idea is to generate so much attention that it sells for way, way more than the list price. But is that fair to people out there? Well, this listing generated a lot of attention. It has since been pulled down. One of the reasons why is our next guest, actually. Jimmy Lee joins us now at BC Realtor, who was actually highlighting this listing on social media. Jimmy, thanks for being here. Hey, Cindy. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me, why did you highlight this listing? Because it seems to me that a million dollars, it's not your listing, but why were you highlighting this on social media? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I want to start off with is, is uh, I want to make one thing clear. The video wasn't made to really discredit any one realtor because in reality, no rules or laws were broken. What I wanted to illustrate was the fact that there needs to be a change in the real estate industry, right? Because there's already a genuine distrust towards realtor and this type of practice not only weakens the trust between real estate professionals and the public, but it creates a false narrative around housing affordability and for the misinformed buyers, it wastes a lot of their time and ends up leaving them feel lost and, and hopeless. Yeah, right? I think so that's, that's, yeah. that's really true. Why, why do realtors do that then? Um, mainly to uh, it's a marketing strategy, right? So more eyes on the listing creates more buzz and um, you know you're telling the news right now you know anything that creates buzz just attracts a lot of a lot of uh, attention so that that's one of the reasons right but it also does create as you pointed out kind of that that frenzy and people get stressed out by it too don't they absolutely absolutely I've seen it you know over the past two years it's been a crazy seller's market and you know, every listing got multiple offers. And, and right now we're in a different market where, you know, buyers do have a lot more leverage because there's not, um, there's not, not, not enough, um, not enough buyers that are looking for real estate right now because the interest rate rise, uh, rates, right? So, yeah. 
So why not just say, as a realtor then, Jimmy, why not just say to a client, this is what your house is worth, and therefore we should list it at that price? I, that's, that's what we should be doing. <laughs> really, really. So, um, you know, as a real estate agent, um, we're, we're giving the rules to the game. We can't change the laws or the rules, but we can change kind of how we represent ourselves. And when we are working with clients, that's what we should be doing, giving them advice on market value and really taking into account the general public as well and how it's going to affect them. Right. So you feel right now just turn it, it turns it almost into too much of a game, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what would you like your fellow realtors to do here? Would you, would you like to see the end of practices like that? Yeah. I mean, again, there's, there's no rules or laws that were broken. Um, but you know, they, this industry has, has a less than stellar reputation and in order to change that perception, we really need to do a better job at holding each other accountable when necessary and challenge each other to be better. Because, um, you know, we do need to have uh, our, our client's best interest at heart, meaning getting them the best offer. But at the same time, we have to consider how it's going to look for real estate professionals as well. So I do want to see us take more accountability um, for ourselves and for each other. All right, Jamie, what happened when you posted this online? Because, boy, did it ever get a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect it to, uh, to blow up this, this much. Um, but, yeah, the video got over 90,000 views, and um, you know, a few media sources picked it up and, yeah, created a lot of buzz, which, you know, in a way, it was really good for the listing itself because um, it definitely got a lot of attention. Right. But how about your fellow realtors? How are kind of they feeling about this right now? Um, Honestly, I haven't talked to many. I did talk to, you know, a few at my brokerage. And it it is something that is, uh, (laughs) you know. Bit of a sore spot? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, it's not often that we see that, right? Where we have a realtor going, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. It's bad for our profession. Um, when the market's hot, I guess there's that's less of an issue, isn't it? Yeah, when the market's hot, you, you list it for, you know, what the sellers want, and you still get multiple offers. And, you know, I think this this listing, since the market has slowed down, um, they're trying to find a way to increase engagement and, and, and bring more attention, which is, you know, I, I, I don't blame them, but it could have been done in a different way. Yeah. Do you get that a lot though, Jimmy? I wonder like when you're thinking about helping someone sell a home, is there a disconnect between what the buyers are thinking about the market these days versus what the sellers are thinking about the market? There often is, um, you know, as a real estate professional, we have all the information. Um, So we're there to advise our clients, whether it's a buyer or seller on the market conditions. So, there, there definitely is a disconnect. All right. So what is your advice to potential buyers out there? When they see situations like this, like how should they approach it? Absolutely. So I, I, I strongly believe that knowledge um, is, is power, right? If you have knowledge, you can't be controlled or manipulated or taken advantage of, so you'll make better decisions. 
which is one of the one, one of the reasons I create content. Um, so if you are looking to buy real estate, you want a strong team behind you, mortgage broker, a lawyer, a home inspector, and, and a realtor with strong ethics, you know, is honest and has integrity. I, I know it sounds contradictory, <laughs> but believe it or not, there are <laughs> agents who possess these qualities. Uh, I've negotiated against these types of realtors, so I know they exist, and, and many of them exist within my brokerage, McDonald Realty. Um, so arm yourself with the knowledge and build a strong team of professionals because this is the biggest investment that you're going to make in your life, and you want to make sure that you have all the knowledge and power possible. Well, that's good advice. Jimmy, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Simi.